Pete, because we only have one episode after this one left for this season. First of all, can you believe Ooh, that? We better hurry then. Get we everything in. I wanted to go back to our very first season. Oh. And bring something up. Give you a little like update on things. Okay, Did you good. like it? That is so ironic, Tom. That's exactly what my anxiety is today. Is an update. Really? Can you oh. believe it? Oh, oh this we're, is we're real. A... Talk about unprecedented collision of ideas. <laughs> Uh, well, I will go first. About three years ago, in our sixth episode, I talked about my irrational fear of robots and AI. Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you don't let me forget. And do you remember what the clinical name of that fear is called? Oh, was it robotophobia? Robophobia, one of the first <laughs> in a long line of lazily named phobias. <laughs> being churned out um in the app uh if you remember before we veered off into fears of automation and what it'll do to the world's human workforce i brought up that how the idea of robots in warfare make me anxious because you can't reason with a robot right. a robot can't empathize with its enemy and that's terrifying sure well good news Pete. there's nothing scary involving robots in warfare these days so we can all just relax oh. welcome to what's that smell a sometimes fun uh well I see what you did there. I don't think it's going to fly. <laughs> Obviously, that is not true. And I recently stumbled on an article at Forbes.com that shows me that my irrational fears might be way too rational after all. Can I just read you my notes real quick? Well, you, I guess. Okay. During a recent webinar, John, General John Murray, who is the head of the Army Futures Command, which I now know is a thing, <laughs> said that humans may not be able to fight swarms of enemy drones and that the rules governing human control over AI might need to be relaxed. Okay. All right. Drone swarm. AI. Murray. It's all the words that give me anxiety. <laughs> I can't believe you didn't say relaxed. That one is the one that really upsets me. What? <laughs> what? What is it first? What is a drone swarm? Uh, well, for example, in October of last year, China released a video of a swarming drone system that releases 50 kamikaze drones carrying high explosive warheads that buzz around and they're potentially powerful enough to destroy tanks and other armor. Now, back to the general. Uh, he said, quote, when you were defending against a drone swarm, a human may be required to make that first decision. And I'm not sure any human can keep up. This would be a change from current Pentagon rules about humans needing to have meaningful control over robotics, lethal robotics. Um, it's the difference between humans on the loop and humans in the loop. Who cares? Murray says in the future, we are likely to see swarms of thousands of drones or more. One U.S. Navy project is working on having to counter up to a million drones at once. Oh Did you hear what happened to my voice when I said million? <laughs> That's so many. That's so oh many. God. We are we are just ground beef, man. This uh. is it's, uh, and so said one scientist at the webinar who needed to remain anonymous to be quoted in Forbes.com because there's nothing better to raise your adrenaline than scientists afraid to go on the record. <laughs> if you have to transmit an image of the target, let a human look at it and wait for the human to hit the fire button. That is an eternity at machine speed. If we slow the AI to human speed, we're going to lose. So, let me just sum this up. We create machines that can kill, and then we need to put other machines in charge of those machines because we can't respond fast enough because all of our gross humanity falling out all over the place. What? How can this possibly go wrong? This is the I love it with the general. The general's big reply is the unleash the hounds defense. Like just, yeah, just throw go for all it. of the things at it, and it will be fine. We're fine. Yeah. We're fine. <laughs> 
Unleash the I liken it to, we're like an old woman who swallowed a fly, but then we swallow a drone spider that will wiggle and jiggle and explode in our throats. I got a job in the valley, but today I didn't go. Welcome to What's That Smell, a sometimes funny podcast about humans and their anxieties. I'm Tommy Metz Third, And I'm Pete Wright. And every week, we each drag one of our deepest, darkest anxieties into the light to share it, learn about it, and hopefully laugh about it with all of you. Reach out to us. There is still time. We only have one more episode for this season after today's, but then we're going to have more seasons. We're never going away. So <laughs> fear not, our listener. <laughs> Anyways, reach out. Send us the story of your anxiety. Just go to whatsthatsmell.net, and there's a little button up at the top right, and it says donate, and then there's some clicks, and you type in some stuff, and hey, we go to anxiety town together so reach out we would love to hear from you and let's get started on this one with that pete i will go first what is even happening today pete this week guess what i'm doing i don't know tom what a listener submission oh i Speaking love those of, my favorite I was just talking about it like a second ago. Just a and second now there's ago. one that's here. That was on the Ooh. trip to Anxiety Town. Oh. That was on the trip to Anxiety Town. Hot <laughs> off the Anxiety Press. Hot off the Panic Press. That would have been oh, cool. To that say. would have been better. Um, I want to go right into it. Here we go. <clears throat> Hi, guys. I have a huge anxiety per in that a lot of kids I know also have per in, per out. Do you have to say per in, per out? I'm going to start over. <laughs> no, I don't think so. But I think if we own it, that could be our thing. Panic okay. punctuation. <laughs> I have a huge anxiety per in that a lot of kids I know also have per out. It's whenever I put my feet down by my bedside, I am always scared something is going to reach out and grab my ankles. Oh, God. And then there's like this emoticon of this yellow person. And it's not happy. <laughs> Please tell me how not to be anxious. Signed, Ricardo. Wow. Okay. Oh, yeah. This is universal. <laughs> Do you have this? I did. I don't have it anymore, but I definitely did. Um, here, let's start with this. Ricardo, first and foremost, you are not alone. And while this fear is often found more often in younger children, it is not unheard of for teens and adults to still have this particular heebie-jeebie. Why, Pete, in 2017, The Mirror, the newspaper in the UK, surveyed thousands of adults and found that 36% of adult-age Britons still fear that something unknown is in their room with them at night, oh and as many as 1 in 10 just do a little quick check under their bed before turning off the light. 1 in 10? That's in 10%. 10. Some would say I could have just converted that. Yeah, that's exactly right. So my anxiety this week is math. No. Um, so Ricardo just wanted to get that out. It is normally, you normally think of this as a childhood fear, and we can get into that, but it is not at all just a childhood fear. So, Pete, I want to begin with you. Well, if there's anything that I think we've learned over the course of our time on this podcast is that there really is no such thing as childhood fears. It's a fear yeah, that you gotta... have or that you don't have, and fear right. and anxiety and panic do not discriminate. No, that's true. I got to get that, I have to get rid of that dichotomy, because... Everyone's afraid of everything all the time. <laughs> yes, right? It's why we do this stupid podcast. So right? uh, do do I have it? Absolutely, I do. And I've told you, I told you about the things in my walls, didn't I? The scratching? Wait. 
they, I think it was last season when I had the things in the walls. It would scratch at night. It, it would be dark That's and right. scratching, and I thought it was in my That's closet. Right. And I was, I it was like it, night after night after night. This was happening. It turns out after you know seven eight days of this, I I made my daughter go. Uh, trim a bush or tree that had overgrown over the side right. of our house and I didn't make the connection that oh it was the tree in the wind and right. once That's she right. cut That's it the right. sound went away I thought it was animals digging through the drywall in the walls of my closet and it's <laughs> legit terrifying uh, that next yeah. night you think you're going crazy right sure. and and so I I absolutely I go through periods uh when I definitely feel this personally when I uh put my feet down and I I just not sure what's going on and it's usually when I'm otherwise stressed like if I'm in a place mm-hmm. where I am my anxiety is already high I'm late for some project or behind on a job or something my anxiety is already peaked and I uh everything is like an exposed nerve and it that includes peaking around dark corners remember that you said that that it also really happens when you're stressed and also if you're in bed and getting out of bed you were probably just asleep, asleep or right, getting right, tired right. yep later in this section we're going to get to why that is why those things happen but first i wanted to talk about myself real quick i don't necessarily suffer from it right now in my when i was younger there was definitely a time a significant time when i wouldn't step out of bed i would sort of propel myself out of bed yeah, because you got to so jump out of the be, launch zone yeah yeah the reach, like, reach zone. yeah i call it yeah the monster splash zone yeah, yeah. Uh, you propel yourself up because i assume monsters have arms just like us um <laughs> and yeah because and i think mine came from a movie that i had seen where someone was oh it was poltergeist probably it was when i saw poltergeist too many of mine um, came from poltergeists. So what, are you kidding? We've done clowns. Haven't we done the tree yep. through the window thing? Haven't we? Yep. I mean, come on. Real poltergeist. Real okay. <laughs> the market. <laughs> Graveyards. Yeah. yeah. So I did have to do that. Um, if we take it off from just the ankles thing, though, I think I've told this on this podcast. My dog, Foster, who's trying to kill me, has done this twice. This is fun. I've woken up. This is just proof that I'm still have a worry about someone being in my room sometimes. He's woken up, and I always wake up if he hops off the bed, um, because I wonder if he has to go out. And I didn't hear him, and I heard him sort of growling. And so I I sort of lifted up, and I was like, what's going on? He's sitting right in front of my incredibly (laughs) dark closet with his ears up, just growling. And I was like, what? What? What's going on, buddy? And he looked at me and he yawned and he jumped back in bed. Yeah, right. <laughs> and I was like, well, I'm not going back to sleep. <laughs> Thanks that, a lot, jerk. That's so funny that you bring that up because I, I do that. Like, I my wife doesn't growl, but I do have that experience when, like, I'm in that state of half sleep and it's early in the morning. It's like, a, you know, kind of f- three, four, five in the morning. And my wife is somebody like she gets, oh, she's so, she gets up and she goes swimming and she has like these five o'clock swim times right now. Oh, this isn't a euphemism. Got it. Okay. I thought she was like swimming in bed, like you were saying, like she was moving no, around. No, she's too literally much. swimming. A euphemism for what? I'm wondering right now, but we're gonna let that go. So <laughs> she's, uh, so she's, she leaves the house early, and so I'll wake up probably triggered by like the garage door or something opening, and sure. I don't quite know that that's waking me up, but it's waking me up, and I'm sitting there and I hear breathing. And I my I think, oh, it's great. And then I kind of move my foot over to find her and she's gone. 
Like there's nothing there. I like reach the end of the, but I hear breathing and I'm not awake. And that triggers this like rush of panic for me. And I just, it wakes me up in the worst way because you wake up and you're horrified that there's something in the room and it's not the thing you expected to be, but it's my, it's my dog and he's snoring and I can't find him (laughs) because he's like this big, but my wife has gone swimming. The dog has replaced her. I can't find her with my foot. I go into panic. My heart, I wake up and my heart is like, it's, it is the worst way to kind of shake yourself awake. And it's, it's that like not quite lucid state that is, that is, Terrible for me. Right. Terrible. Oh, Gambit. Your dog's the best. <laughs> what can't he ruin? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, yes, t- Ricardo, to start to become less anxious, it helps to know where this fear comes from. Uh, and it usually comes from a couple different places. Uh, back in the olden days, actually, way back, a lot of children feared the quote boogeyman under the bed because parents told them there was one. So kids wouldn't what? get out of bed. Wait, what? This is true. Parenting is fun. Would you like some international examples <laughs> yes. of under the bed boogeyman? Is one okay. of them the Baba Duke? <laughs> no, but I just rewatched that. Oh, so good. Um, in Spain, we have El Hombre del Saco, which means the sack man. And he's a mean and skinny old man who hides under your bed and then collects misbehaving kids in a sack and eats them. <laughs> That's the sack man for you. Uh, France has a little croquet mentane, which is the hand cruncher. You can probably guess what he's up to. (laughs) And under the beds in Belgium is Oud Road Again, or Old Red Eyes, which is a shape-shifting shadow dog, that's fun to say, with burning red eyes. So, look, parents are the worst. (laughs) But but of course... Did your parents ever tell you any of these things? No, they never talked to me, Pete. (laughs) Anyways, um, (laughs) they didn't have to worry with me getting off the bed. That's what the chains were for. So anyways, it goes back further than that, Ricardo, and it connects to another phobia that we covered early on, nyctophobia, or... Night fears, night terrors. Fear of the dark. Yeah, fear of the dark. Right. Uh, Back in our hunter-gathering days, children would fear bedtime because of the threat of wild animals. There were boogeymen. They just growled and didn't have leashes on them. Yes. Long ago, at the beginning of humans, our ancestors slept in groups as a way to stay safe. So leaving a child alone at night would have made them vulnerable to the environment or predators. So sometimes scientists believe this stuff is hardwired into us as an evolutionary safeguard. Wow. Wow. Um, It's not proven, but, you know, what is proven? Here's one more thing that I found. And this goes into the sleep part. And when you said that you're punching your dog in the face because you're like half asleep and all this stuff... The part of the brain most sensitive to a lack of sleep is the amygdala, our old friend. Oh, the anxiety and, acorn of terror. Exactly. The yeah. seat of anxiety. When the brain is tired, the amygdala will be more likely to read non-threats as threats and ready the body for flight or flight. So when you wake up and you put your feet down, you're probably still sleepy. And as a result, just like in nyctophobia, when it's dark and your vision is bad, your body ramps everything up, and you're hearing things, and you're thinking that there's animals when it's just a tree outside, Uh, your stupid um, amygdala, it's hard to say, might accidentally lash out at you, and that's why all of a sudden, you've got uh, things grabbing for you. Oh, I don't care for it. And it's made even worse, because Gambit, you know, the ruiner of things, he sleeps under our bed sometimes, and so, like, sometimes you'll put your feet down, and he'll be either going under or coming out of the bed, and your feet are meeting a fuzzy, betoothed (laughs) object, and then suddenly he's, like, licking your feet, and it's super gross, because he has a foot thing, but you're in that, like, half 
sleep state. And that yeah. is that just reinforces that sense right. memory of terror that things really are living under your bed. It happens to be a white fluffy dog, but right. it's a like horror blood soaked white soaked fluffy fluffy <laughs> dog when your amygdala gets control of it. <laughs> exactly. So first, I hope that uh, Ricardo that helps a little bit to know that it's not necessarily it's not you and it's something hardwired into you that this is just a part of your brain it's like it's an evolutionary mismatch it's no longer appropriate but we just had it for so long and it was so important uh that nightmares were real way back then that part of you still thinks that you're sleeping in a cave um what are some other things that you can actually do we're probably not supposed to like attack it practically because that's reinforcing <laughs> the anxiety but i have a little quick list of Ch- stuff that i think does you it could include do. like chicken wire your under bed area well i did say stack some pillows or books at uh-huh. one side of the bed where you get out or keep everything under your bed or knock out the things <laughs> so there is no under your bed knock out the things yeah, sleep on the floor right uh for young children uh which i do not believe is ricardo of course there is monster spray Oh, all of, of our websites say monster spray. Yeah, uh, it's just water. <laughs> Kids will believe everything. <laughs> uh, yeah, you take monster spray and you spray it around because yeah. that that or you know you let the child spray it around, of course, because that puts them in control. And of course, after the monster spray, you search under the bed and in the closet and officially declare the room monster free before going to bed. Mm-hmm. I have one for adults. Oh, what I is actually it? have two. I have two. Number one, mirror on floor. Mirror on the floor. Mirror on the mirror floor. On the floor. So you what put you a do? mirror on the floor, and, and then you, you look see. down at the mirror with a flashlight or something. You can see if there's anything under there. Look at you. I don't know who That's this character a, is. I don't know either, but he's like, he's introducing <laughs> physics in 1978. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, hey, So I would get a mirror. It could be a hand mirror. It could yeah. be a large mirror. Yeah, whatever. And just mirror. put it on the floor. So you look at it. You're looking on the thing. It's called reflections. Hey, look it up. I don't, I'm going to stop talking like this. I promise. Um, I have one other. Do you have any suggestions before? No, I mean, because, I just make the make the child sleep under the bed. Then they'll be sure there's nothing under there. Oh, mm-hmm. like Nudit from Aliens? Yeah. That's N- right. The little girl who always slept under the bed. That's right. Good point. Yeah. That's right. Make the bed so uncomfortable. Like, just lace it with barbed wire and sand and marbles. Yeah. And then it'll sleep on the floor. And there's no monsters under there. You know what's ironic? The worst part of those? The marbles. <laughs> <laughs> They're always clickety-clacking against them. You can't sleep. No, I would say my last thought is just to try to take back things that are making us anxious and try to take control, uh, get a drone (laughs) and fly a drone (laughs) under the bed each morning (laughs) and he can putter around or just have it explode. You're going to need a lot of drones, though. Thank God that China's (laughs) taking care of that with the... (laughs) Exactly. Just go out drone hunting. (laughs) It's going to be fine. You'll be fine. It's going to be great. So, Ricardo, thank you so much for uh, submitting. We really appreciate it. There is not really a ton that we could really do for you, but we believe in you and know that you are not alone and it is hardwired into you. And uh, yeah, get a drone, Peek. <laughs> get a drone. Our story ends in the privileged retirement of a wealthy white man after the deaths of over 400 people indirectly connected to him. Our story starts 233 miles north. As with most stories of historic Los Angeles, this one is all about water. 
Rainfall over the last two centuries in Southern California has tended more toward famine than feast. And in 1878, the Los Angeles City Water Company wanted to do something to protect its customers and residents from future shortages. They hired a man as a zangiero, a ditch tender, who proved to be something of a star. William Mulholland took the role and ran, studying engineering, mathematics, hydraulics, and geology, and moved up the ranks of the company quickly. By 1902, he was superintendent and chief engineer of the newly formed water department for the city, the Bureau of Waterworks and Supply. He was a smash hit in the water world. He was behind the Los Angeles Aqueduct, for example, the longest aqueduct in the world that uses gravity alone to bring water 233 miles from the Owens Valley to Los Angeles. His problem, though, where to put it? He found a place for a reservoir in the San Francisquito Canyon. And beginning in 1922, construction began on the St. Francis Dam. This was the second dam built by the team, the first, the famous Mulholland Dam. The two were near twins. But angry farmers had plagued the construction of the first dam and the aqueduct, so they wanted to keep a lid on construction as long as they could. As a result, they took some shortcuts. One, which would prove disastrous, they didn't have any of their construction calculations vetted outside of the water department, only reviewing their work inside their own team. This dam was big, so big, 185 feet above the stream bed big, with a capacity of 38,000 acre feet, which apparently in the dam world is gigantic. So on March 12th, 1926, it was concerning to find muddy water leaking from the abutments. Oh, wait, did I say concerning? I mean, not concerning at all, to Mulholland at least, who said it was all within expectation for a concrete dam. The reservoir continued to rise. A series of farmer-led bombings of the aqueduct led to even more rigorous service for the dam, and small leaks continued. By March 12, 1928, dam keepers noted a series of new leaks now releasing over 15 gallons of water per second. Again, Mulholland was quick to note, Yeah, we should fix it, but we're okay right now. Until, two and a half minutes before midnight, that very night when the entire dam failed catastrophically, releasing 12.4 billion gallons of water and a 144-foot-high flood wave. Power structures were destroyed. 431 people were killed. In a committee investigation, the city found the design of the dam to be sound. It was the execution that was faulty. It was the builder's fault, not Mulholland's, they said later investigation found otherwise that hydrostatic uplift, water seeping through the notoriously unstable California earth beneath the dam, reduced the dam's overall weight. And that was the fault. And that's something that might well have been uncovered with the help of outsiders. You're an outsider, but you don't have to be. For just $35, you can go from outsider to insider and become a What's That Smell Panic Pal. With each and every one of your dollars supporting the hosting and delivery of this fine season of anxiety to your ears. We're almost through, so hurry if you want to be a part of Season 5 history. Join us for the last few live streams and get your hands on your very own collection of WTS stickers. Visit whatsthatsmell.net to learn more. And join the Insiders crew today. Ta-da!
Thomas, I got to tell you, I'm all over the map today. <laughs> okay. I okay. mean, just all over the map. It started with a uh, discovery of a very recent YouTube video that I watched that grossed me out a lot. A lot. You know, I mean, well, for okay. You know I have trouble with my glasses, right? Sure. Sure. Every time I put them on, I'm not an expert glasses wearer, and I put them on, and Got they it. fog up, and sometimes I get down here, oh, and sure. I put them in my mouth, and I go, <sighs> like that, and then yep. I rub them with my shirt, and then I put them back on my face, and then I, that, and this, and that, and, and they're cheap. And then in the era of face masks, everybody's yeah. fogging up all the time. Everybody's fogging up the glasses all the time. On their way to Anxiety Town, they're fogging up. You don't even see when they get there. Okay, so so I I don't think about glasses. I've never been trained how to wear glasses. None of that. I don't even, I don't know anything. I got to share with you a thing right now. Mm, Is it going to gross me out? Oh, most certainly. Most certainly. (laughs) I'm just going to play a little bit of this video for you. I'm going to play a little bit for you. And you just tell me what you think. This is courtesy of the uh, fantastic Hank Green on his channel, Vlog Brothers. I'm a big fan of Hank Green, and he's a science communicator and an author, and I really love his work until this. Good morning, John. I recently, uh, you know, noticed, as you do, that my glasses were disgustingly filthy. Usually when I notice this, I will uh, just go about my day. And that's what I did. And then later I realized that they were still super filthy. And then a day after that, I was like, okay, I'm going to clean my glasses. But then I had a thought. What exactly is on them? What is all that stuff? And I also realized that I have a microscope. And so I continued to not wash my glasses for yep. seven full days. Seven and days. now it is time for me to show you what is it? Just listen, what is it? Because listen to I what he found here. Because I have a microscope. Because of microscopes. Go. Warning yeah. from Hank from the future. What you are about to see is not great. Oh, green. <laughs> Why is yeah. it green? The mucus. Okay, yeah. well, there's a big something. What's that? Why is it a color? Those are all just like individual <laughs> little dots of grease. Yeah. That down there is a skin cell. Uh-huh. Oh, wow. Ugh. Oh, God. Yeah. Is that a hair? It is a it hair. It must be a hair with just some just some sebaceous stuff there, on it. There it goes. Sebaceous? Yeah. He used the word sebaceous. What's that word That's mean? It. I'm so glad you asked. That's where I stopped because I had to vomit. Sebaceous, sebaceous means, I know I hate it. Yeah, it's relating to oil or fat. Oh, it's sebaceous. Oh, God, it's the worst. It's so, it's so bad, (laughs) Tom. It's so bad. And then, uh, as you do, I'm researching things like, what do you recommend for cleaning your glasses? And as it turns out, when you start looking for things like that, you find other things. And uh, one of those things is a very recent study. Tom, it turns out COVID has allowed us to revisit a lot of things that we also were uh, thought were terrifying and horrible in the past. And this time, people are actually studying how germs are laying out in our homes since we're spending so much more time there. Uh, so important, but I changed? don't want to know. Uh, Thank no. you for doing it. No, it's no, terrible. No, you're going to regret it. Let me also tell you that in the this is a parenthetical, so I'm on a parent. I'm going to parent open <laughs> and parent close. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I'm going to parent open. And that, that first one is there is a Twitter account called just say, just says in mice. Have you heard of this? 
at just, just as in mice. In mice, I don't even yeah. get what that means. Yeah, the world's hardest working little scientist, and it's pretty much somebody who goes around and looks at all of the studies that are announced on Twitter as massive medical breakthroughs, and mm-hmm. they quote those. And the only thing that the tweet says is in mice. Like, for example, the cause of autism may have been discovered in mice because that's what because all of these studies are these grand headlines that make you think that the world is changing. But really, they've only discovered it in mice. Got it. And this is all over the place. So this is how I I come across this particular study uh, that is talking about your home and how dirty it is. Is and so I thought oh. we would just take a brief moment to revisit our in, our germophobia by looking at your home and it's we're going to do just a little quiz show and we're just going to say do you know Tom no! do you know uh, where the germs are in your house uh, because yeah. I reckon you don't I reckon you don't coliform bacteria including Salmonella and Escherichia coli are harbingers of potential fecal contamination and were found in 81% of households. Yeast and mold, which can have negative impacts on health, were present in 31% of households. And finally, researchers found Staphylococcus aureus in over 5% of households. Okay. Now, once you get in, that's that's just what's in the house, Tom. You remember that. I mean, that's just stuff yeah. that's in the house. But once you this get in the house, <laughs> what is it that is the most filthy in Didn't your we do house? this for like hotels? Mm-hmm. And things have changed because of COVID. And this is a very recent study from okay. uh, researchers from NSF International, Independent Public Health Organization. They did a study to find the germs lurking in your house as COVID-19 sweeps the world. And I should say, I found this article written on, uh, it's on MD Links, which is an article for doctors. So mm. these, this is saying, like, being a physician, infection control member measures are probably familiar to you. But have you looked in your own house? That's the whole (laughs) perspective of the article. So what do you think is the most disgusting thing in your house? Real quick, can I say, physician, clean thyself. Can you edit edit that in? Okay, never mind. Yeah, that's good. The The most thing or room? What did you say? Oh, it's thing. We're talking about things. Things and spaces in rooms. Toilet? No. What? I know. Do you want it? You want to hang out? Actually, in fact, you may just want to curl up around the bin, around the bowl of your toilet after hearing some of these things. The number one survey says kitchen sponge or rag. Oh, no. And mine is called like Scrub Daddy. It's a face. Oh, he is filthy. <laughs> he is awful. He seems swarthy. Yeah, probably. Like, like when, like when I pick him up, he, you can hear him sort of be like, time to get wet. Like I'm like, what? <laughs> Scrub Daddy. Oh, I am a sailor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's like the Mason yeah, XB of sponges. Totally. Yeah. yeah. According to NSF yeah. International, the germiest thing in your house is the kitchen sponge or rag. 81% yeah. of families had coliform bacteria. Seven in their homes, over 75% had the bacteria on their dish sponges or dish rags. They do not no. wash them. Enough, and it's pretty much you. You need to take these things, and you need to throw them in the laundry after a single day of use. Like just throw, get wash them, wash your rags all the time if you have permanent rags. Um, because you know what it's the worst terrible. part is, Pete. What I eat off my spot. <laughs> <laughs> I broke all my plates, <laughs> so this is a disaster. <laughs> uh, how about this? Two hundred million bacteria are living in one 
square inch of your sponge. Ooh. Yeah. Ah, and too much. The warm and moist environment. That's pretty okay. good. This is. I'm going to bundle the kitchen hand towels and kitchen sink because those are numbers two and three, but we're just in the kitchen. Yeah. And so that's those are sure. things. Washing dishes is a horribly filthy thing because you finish washing wow. dishes and then you just leave things, right? The sponge. A yeah. lot of people just leave the sponge in the sink. No more. I'm going to light mine on fire. <laughs> the, the, so we're going to go with number two. This is an appliance. It's an appliance that I just... It is uh, the worst thing that I've discovered in this hi- entire exercise. Would I probably have it? Is it pretty common? It's pretty common. I don't know if you have it. Hmm. It is definitely an appliance that requires a taste for a thing. For a... For a, some a taste for a thing? What yeah. does that mean? Toaster? Why would I pick toaster? <laughs> Stupid. This is a thing that just does one thing. It's just a thing, and you spoon. It's in the morning, and you come down, and you, Peter, coffee. Yeah, coffee, coffee makers, coffee machines. Yeah. Oh no! So I the, don't really. I have a French press. That's probably better because you clean really? it every time, right? True. Do you clean it every time? Let's get that out of the sure. way. Sure. All right. <laughs> okay. So yeah, the with, that, in- with that one sponge. <laughs> cascading failure okay so the inside of your coffee machine the the reservoir inside your coffee machine is one of the germiest places uh they they actually throw out uh, throw out numbers Four five hundred and forty eight thousand two hundred and seventy normalized microorganisms per 10 square centimeters (laughs) it stays warm and damp uh it is the perfect environment for yeast and mold to grow. Yeast and mold were found in 50% of the coffee reservoirs and coliforms in 9%. Because the water just sits there. And most people, when they're done making their coffee in the morning, they drink their coffee, then they pour it out and they give it a rinse, but they don't wash right. it, right? Right before right. they pour yeah. the water. And they think, oh, it's boiling water. It's like the, the water gets really hot and it pours through the coffee and into the, into the carafe. But yeah. the problem is you're not washing the carafe that well enough do between, yeah, between your your brews, it is filthy. That's totally new to me. I had not heard th- that coffee I, machines were a problem I think at all. I wrongly would have thought that like it gets so hot that it kills the me little too. things. Yeah, but that's it does not, not get hot enough. And you know the worst part, Pete? I'm uh, gonna have a worst part for everything. Yeah, I got my coffee maker at Bed Bath and Sebaceous. <laughs> <laughs> So I am a disaster. <laughs> All right. The next one is uh, applies also to you. I hope it applies oh. to you. We're out of the kitchen now, and we're moving. We are moving toward uh, your personal space. What do you think? What's the next personal most space. disgusting thing? Play- room or thing? It is a thing. <sighs> I don't you do like it. This. You do it two, hopefully two times, maybe three times if you ask your dentist. Toothbrush. Toothbrush holder, Tom. What? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people have like cups that they use their toothbrush holder or like a little thing. You put it and the water drips down into this little little oh. holder around there and it just sits. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Coliforms. Twenty seven percent of toothbrush holders had coliform bacteria. Ugh. Still we still haven't reached that. the toilet. We still haven't reached the toilet. And we never will. <laughs> Goodbye. Okay. Okay. Moving on. You have a pet. Your pet's name is Foster. He's delightful. But there is a thing about Foster that does carry 
normalized microorganisms per 10 square centimeters. Mm. What is that thing? Probably his tail. I was thinking about having it removed. <laughs> is, it his, is it his feet? It's his, his paws? His uh, bowl and toys. Oh. Oh, what? All right. That's it, Foster. Yep. Hope you ate a big breakfast. Yep, because that's it. <laughs> no, uh, the usually it's the bowl is the fourth germiest thing in your house. Uh, lots of bacteria because they eat. I only they put lick it in it. the dishwasher like once a week, that's and it. I don't do anything with his toys. Yeah, and They're what about toys. the what about the water bowl? Like the water bowl. Do you, how often do you dishwash that? When I do the food bowl, like okay. I, that's once on the same suit okay. once same, a week. Yeah, same thing. Yep, yep. Yeah, we don't Ugh. we don't wash our pets' dishes enough, and they eat out of them. Luckily, they tend to have, I think, more rugged stomachs. I guess, right? I don't know. Yeah. I, it's that that creeps me out. Their toys are also super dirty. Fifty five percent of the families surveyed had they found yeast and mold in their toys. Twenty three percent had Ugh. Staphylococcus aureus. Uh, and, you want you want to know the worst part, Pete? Uh, you know what I feed my dog? Sponges. <laughs> You know what his favorite toy is? Mr. Spongy? <laughs> Mr. Spongy. God. Okay, fine. The next one. This is great. I don't actually deal with this one at all because oh. I'm a modern technological kind of guy. Oh. A lot um, of people have this in their pockets. Not me. Phones? No. I imagine you uh, pocket change pull out some greenbacks every now and again to tip your oh, driver. Money. Yeah, money. Sure. Yeah, this is the uh, this yeah, is the, money's supposed to be legendarily horrifying, yeah, right? Yeah, in the top okay. in the top list. This one, oh god. <sighs> okay, I'm going to go ahead and just read this from the study. Okay, and I'm just going to say it all real fast, and then oh. we'll get to move on from the show. We're going to hang it up. <clears throat> oh, okay. <laughs> The average dollar bill in New York City is home to hundreds of species of microorganisms, including <clears throat> dermal bacteria, vaginal bacteria, oral <laughs> microbes, pet DNA, viruses, drugs, uh, <laughs> and swabbed circulating one dollar bills from a New York City bank also used uh, bank using shotgun metagenomic sequencing to profile what? microorganisms on their surface. Our results suggest that money amalgamates DNA from sources inhabiting the human microbiome, food, other environmental inputs, some of which can be recoverable as viable organisms. You know the two worst words in all of that? <laughs> Species and viable. Because <laughs> there's no way to just be like, just rub some dirt on it. Like it's become yeah. something. Yeah, Ugh. it's taking on a life of its own. And that gives me, Ugh. that is like, I'm, my heart is racing right now. That is like God. peak filth. And, and I'm not, I'm like, peak <laughs> this is one of those funny things. I, so the, I just want to wrap up. It, this is really terrible. This just whole inve infectious pathogens on money Oof. and dog bowls. I just don't, I, I don't want to deal with it. But I wonder as we're getting close to the end of this season, I wonder if we're getting any better at like, I don't know, anesthetizing ourselves from anxiety about this. Because how do you leave a conversation like this and go forth and, like, live your life? What are you going to do? You're not going to touch anything. You can't touch anything in your kitchen. You can't touch spongy McWet right. face. Like, you can't do anything like this. <laughs> so I, I happened on another uh, wonderful video uh, on YouTube from a, a 
science researcher who was talking about the anti-stress vaccine and uh, anti-stress vaccine. Yeah, it's like the idea, like a vaccine. What it's doing is it's sort of creating a blueprint of a fake version of the vaccine in your system so that when the real version of the illness comes into your system, your body already is programmed to know what to do with it. Right. Oh, I, I totally. Yes. Yeah, like get, get a little bit of the flu. So when the real flu shows up, that's right. Boom. So getting a little bit like constantly coming back. This show is sort of an anti-anxiety vaccine, right? Like getting right. a little bit of these conversations, hopefully might make it should make it a little bit easier to right. reduce worry. Well, it turns out that in mice, they've figured this out. <laughs> OK, yeah, that researchers have figured out a way to uh, take these white blood cells, which tend to be um, carriers of anxiety hormones, things like that, and take those from stressed mice, right? Put them yeah. in non-stressed mice, present those non-stressed mice with the same stress stimulus, and find that those non-stressed mice remain low stress, thanks to the anxiety markers oh, really? from the other mouse again i say this real loud in, in mice. mice how do you stress out a mice like do you tell him like he's late for the mice bus no you <laughs> like, show him you, a, you show him a cat man it's like written on the tin cat oh, mouse, good point. scared of the, no yeah, yeah you say, it's fine you just show him a cat anyway okay. uh, you stress out the mouse you give him the, you take a little bit of his his blood put it in the chill mouse and the mouse stays chill That's fascinating. So I just want to leave us with that. Like, what can you learn from all this? Be the chill mouse. Like, be the chill mouse. Sometimes (laughs) you gotta, you gotta go suck a sponge to give yourself (laughs) a little bit of the, of the anxiety. And then maybe later you're going to be okay. You're going to be able to like be a crime scene investigator because you'll have gotten over it. (laughs) Not sure that your science holds up. But go suck a sponge is officially my new put down. Hey, hey go, go suck a sponge. They'll never even know what you're talking about, which is the best part of it. You're the only one in on it because you've been in anxiety town. <laughs> all so much for joining us for this episode this week's tune is no show blues by ben bosnick i'm pete wright and i'm tommy metz the third thank you for downloading we'll be back next week on what's that smell